0: building apps that kind of fill what we see as a gap in the kind of existing tools out there of of something that is very easy to learn for somebody that hasn't picked up a laptop or even a phone before to start kind of collecting data, putting on a map, categorizing it, uh, and uh, making something that will work offline without relying on an internet connection, without relying on hosting data somewhere else, uh, which might stop working or might become inaccessible to the community themselves.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. In just a second you're going to hear from Gregor McLennan, the Technical Director at Digital Democracy. And today on the podcast we're talking about peer-to-peer technology, distributed databases, and what that has to do with helping local communities and indigenous communities tell the story, document their journey, fill in the blank spaces on our maps. Just before we get started today, I want to remind you that I am working with OpenCage. So OpenCage is a geocoder based on OpenStreetMap data, and they've brought a bunch of uh, sponsorship slots on, on on this podcast. But instead of me talking about how amazing OpenCage is, and, and they are amazing, don't misunderstand me here, they have decided to donate these slots to to help promote projects that are based on OpenStreetMap. So selected projects will be featured on upcoming episodes of, of this podcast. OpenCage is covering all of the costs. And all you have to do is fill out the form. There'll be a link to it in the show notes of this episode. So maybe you are not directly involved in an OpenStreetMap project, but maybe you know someone who is, or maybe you could just help spread the word about what OpenCage is doing and the opportunity for these OpenStreetMap projects. Anyway, if you could help me out with this, I'd really appreciate it. Hi, Gregor. Welcome to the podcast. You are the technical director at something called Digital Democracy it's got a lot to do with making maps and, and, and geospatial technology, but before we jump into all that, why, why don't you just introduce yourself to the listeners? Let us know who you are and how you got involved in, in geospatial mapping and in digital democracy.
0: Hi, Daniel. Yeah, thanks for talking to me. My background is in a combination of maths and anthropology, and I got involved in maps and geospatial working in, in Peru, in the Amazon, with indigenous communities, and started out making maps with the communities of where illegal logging was happening and where their like territory and the land that they use is. And it's kind of grown from there. I, I've really become passionate about maps and their ability to tell stories and communicate across cultures. And my work with digital democracy now is working with Indigenous communities around the world to support them to use maps to tell a story about how their lives are being affected by environmental contamination or destruction and also tell a story about why the forests and the rivers and the lands that they live in are so important to them.
1: Wow, and so it sounds like you're doing incredibly important work. Well, why are these stories so important? And how do maps tell stories? Because I'm, I'm, there's other ways of telling stories, right? You could, uh, I don't know, you could, you could sing a song, you could, you could write a story. What, what is it about maps? What is it about geospatial that is important here for for the the kinds of stories that that you want to tell about what's happening to these indigenous cultures?
0: I think, unfortunately, uh, in a way, it's the value put on maps by, uh, by governments, by a kind of Western culture. One of the ways I got involved with this was working with a group of communities that live in northern Peru who have had an oil company operating there from the 1970s and causing a kind of disaster of oil spills throughout the region. And they had been traveling three days downriver to the local the nearby town and speaking out about the contamination for years, telling the stories in their way through through verbal storytelling about what was happening. And they were being ignored uh, and sidelined and being told that their story was incorrect. And there is something about maps and putting kind of coordinates on something, putting a place to something that in the eyes of The government in Peru, for example, in this case, in the eyes of the general public, gives more validity to it in some way. So, uh, you know, communities, uh, the indigenous communities I've seen with see that. Ideally, there'll be more validity given to their their way of storytelling. But the the maps tell a story which is kind of more accepted as valid by the kind of world as a whole.
1: Should we be thinking about more like when we talk about maps as as storytelling devices? are, Are we actually talking about documentation?
0: To a certain extent, I think that that's definitely part of it. It's definitely the part of the story of this is something bad that's happening and here is where it's happening. You know, an oil spill, an illegal gold mine. But there is still a storytelling aspect when it comes to why is this part of the rainforest important to me? Uh, why is that oil spill 20 miles from where my community is? Why is that relevant to me? And that's the kind of aspect of storytelling and maps that shows, sort of transforms a space from a kind of empty area with just a few rivers and and trees to a story about a person's or a community's kind of relationship with the forest relationship with the river relationship with the land around them
1: how, how do you do that through maps so and and just to sort of add context to this so often times when i think about maps is you know, almost like a, a collection of points lines and polygons data in a database uh, imagery that that kind of thing but it, it's you're, you're talking about a connection to a place you're talking about a cultural understanding of a geographic area? How do do you fuse that into data? How do you bind those two things together?
0: Very good question. Uh, I mean, for me, we often start from a place of trying to kind of draw things on on paper. Um, I mean, working with some of the communities we have in the Amazon, you can speak to people and they will tell you, you. I mean, the best thing is you go for a walk with them in the forest or you take a boat down the river and you will really, learn from the stories they tell about how er everything is relevant, what's important there. But we often start after doing that with sitting down with a group of people with a piece of paper and asking them to kind of draw what is important to them. And they might start with the rivers, they might start with footpaths, they might start with the mountains around them. They will draw the places where they collect medicinal plants, draw the places they go fishing or they go hunting. They'll draw the places their ancestors might be buried. And what you start with is often a very kind of pictorial map. Uh, in my view, it's still a valid map. It might be not be kind of geo referenced on a projection that we understand. Um, the distances might reflect time rather than physical distance. The directions might, might mean something different. But then, yeah, it's a it's a process then to transform that type of map into the type of map you know, like you said, you you are more accustomed to kind of points and polygons and kind of but try to retain a kind of degree of the kind of artist storytelling that's in that kind of original hand-drawn map. We try to use the symbols to represent points that the community have used or if we're talking about an area kind of use a pattern fill to kind of fill up that area with the kind of uh, the drawings that they've used to indicate an area of abundant wildlife for example rather than just presenting it on a map as a blue polygon try to present it on the map as an area with uh drawings
1: of all the animals that are in that area so i mean this sounds like really really important work but it doesn't sound incredibly scalable so we started off the conversation by saying there's these these cultures in the world that that live in in wild places and they need help like protecting the environment essentially at least that's what that's what i understood as a as a starting point it's great that you go there and and help them make some maps help them you know document what it is that that how they use the forest how they use this wilderness area but it doesn't sound scalable. We have plenty of technology out there. Can't we just, yeah, you know, take QJS, take uh, this mobile app and and do some mapping, like empower them to tell their own stories?
0: Yeah, that's a really good, really good question. And definitely, I mean, the first sort of part of my career in my kind of twenties and thirties was kind of doing that, going to communities who were asking for support. They either wanted to show why this kind of space that looks empty on a government map isn't empty um, so that the government won't put in a new oil drilling platform in the middle of their land or they wanted to tell the story about how the illegal gold mining is affecting them. And we'd always try to kind of support them in making the map themselves. But the technology has often become a barrier. We've kind of used uh, ArcMap and QGIS in doing the mapping and we've trained community members to, to use it. But for people who have never used a laptop before, who've never used technology before, it's a very steep learning curve. And we found challenges in the scalability of doing that, kind of training people to use the existing technology. It takes, you know, probably about a six month course for somebody to learn and get comfortable with using QGIS, for example. But still then you're kind of investing maybe in one or two people who you who are then going to do mapping for several villages. It's not really feasible for everybody to do a six month course to spend the kind of three days that's necessary to kind of map their village. So that's really what triggered kind of us starting to look at like, well, what other technologies are there apart from more complicated GIS software like ArcGIS or QGIS? There's been some great work in, especially in the sort of online space of making GIS tools simpler, but that's where we kind of hit the problem of connectivity, like so many areas we work have zero connectivity or very limited sort of internet access so what we found a real hole in them, in what was available in terms of tools that are easy to use and work offline so that has led me to to what I do now at digital democracy in that we have started building tools building apps that kind of fill what we see as a gap in the kind of existing tools out there of, of something that is very easy to learn for somebody that hasn't picked up a laptop or even a phone before to start kind of collecting data, putting on a map, categorizing it, uh, and uh, making something that will work offline without relying on an internet connection, without relying on hosting data somewhere else, uh, which might stop working or might become inaccessible to the community themselves.
1: Okay, so so mapping, collecting data... Documenting things in the environment offline—I mean, that, that can be a challenge—and especially getting that data online, making it shareable, making it available to other people. And you talked about internet connectivity being a major problem. But how are you solving that problem? Yeah, well,
0: maybe I can start with a kind of example of using kind of existing tools um, and, and kind of what led us down the path to where we are now. I was working in in Guyana, in the south of Guyana, in Savannah near the border with Brazil. Uh, working with a group of communities, uh, who are Wapishan and Akushi. They were documenting mainly kind of a combination of cattle rustling and illegal gold mining that was happening throughout their kind of territory. And we were using an an app, an existing app that works offline called Open Data Kit. Uh, it's it's a sort of an open source kind of mobile app where you fill in a digital form and it worked. Pretty well for gathering the data offline and gathering a GPS point to put it on a map. But to actually see that data in any context, you had to upload it online somewhere and put it on a server where you could then kind of view that data on a map. The communities I was working with had in one village a hut with solar-powered satellite internet. And they could kind of take it there and upload it. But then the data kind of was a Largely inaccessible to all the villages in the region, it was very slow to even access it in that kind of internet hut and the internet it was great for accessing it outside the villages, but they no longer had any kind of control about who viewed that information or being able to view it themselves and make decisions about what they wanted to share and what they didn't want to share so that's kind of when we started looking at what solutions that are there to kind of store data and share it without needing this kind of like online service and online database. And we initially looked at setting up a local database in a community using something like a Raspberry Pi, like a little small single board computer that they could set up, which would be cheap, and they could run a database there. But it runs into the problem still of centralizing the data in one particular village uh, or having the complication of who sets that up and who maintains it, especially if you're going to scale this for communities all around the world. Uh, So that led us down the path about learning peer-to-peer technologies and distributed databases where the information people are collecting can kind of sit in every single device uh, on the phone, on the laptop, and be synchronized between them. So there is no central database with single place where all the data lives, like all the data that a community is collecting about the land is synchronized and replicated amongst all the different databases which exist on every single device they're using.
1: So we're talking about a decentralized copy of a database where every participant in this network and it's uh, to me it sounds a little bit like a a mesh network uh, somehow gets a copy of the database so everybody is walking around with a complete copy of the database of the observations that everybody else has seen as well as their own observations i I guess what i'm struggling to understand is how they get the copy of the database like given the problems that we have with uh, internet connectivity in the areas that you're working in
0: so maybe Kind of starting from the kind of top and talking a little bit about the, the tool we're building. You know, we've been building a mobile app for this kind of like data collection with mapping. Um, it's called Mapeo. And somebody would install that on their phone. If people are, have access to online, they can access it from the Play Store. Uh, but we often distribute the apps as an, an APK. It's like a file that you can install an app on an Android phone with. And that will include initially an empty version of a database uh, where people somebody could install mapeo and start collecting data which would be stored locally and they can just do that on their own, and the database would all be on their phone and they can share over whatsapp the the kind of observations of the oil spill or the kind of fishing site or anything that they've collected about their the world around them they could they could store it on their phone and share it if others want to collaborate on a project, they would also install the app, they would start collecting data. And if they want to share that and collaborate and bring all the data together, then the phones need to connect to the same Wi-Fi network. They don't need internet. We normally kind of use kind of all $20 Wi-Fi routers or routers to kind of set up a local Wi-Fi network without internet access that just provides a means for the phones to wirelessly connect to each other. And then the data is synchronized between the phones. So if three different people each install Mapeo, they each go out and start collecting data individually, and then they configure it to join the same project, and they come together and connect to a Wi-Fi network and synchronize, they will all end up with the same data from all three people so that every single phone will be kind of a replica of the other.
1: Okay, so a couple of questions here. Can I edit other people's data? And how does the data get to a, a perhaps a, a more sort of centralized lo- location where we display it on a map or start creating um, reports based on the observations that have been recorded? At the moment, mobile users can't edit
0: other people's data. They can only edit their own. But we also have a, a desktop version of Mapeo that will run on a laptop, and that kind of provides often a kind of centralization hub in that the phones will synchronize with a laptop where you can get a better overview of all the data that's being collected, filter it, kind of look at particular th- areas or particular types of things that have been documented, and from there create either export the data uh, in a GIS format to then do something with in in something like qgis or uh, an online map or um we have a kind of very simple way that users can kind of publish to to a web map and quite importantly in the areas we're working is um, the ability to print out the data they've collected create a kind of PDF with a, an overview map with photos and locations of all the things that they've been documenting because more often than not when communities are sharing this information with a local government official um, with the kind of political their political representatives then, they're doing that in an an office space without internet with without laptops Uh, so they need something in their hands where they can kind of show somebody what is happening uh, show somebody a a physical map of 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 what's going on
1: you you talked before about joining a project so it sounds like a project could be for a certain geographic area or something like this i joined the project to help i don't know uh, document what's happening at an oil spill site as an example is there a structured way of collecting data, or can I, does everybody just make whatever kinds of observations they, they like or feel like making a, about that, that oil spill in, in this case? I guess what I'm getting at is, earlier in the conversation, you talked about the predecessor to, to Mapeo, which was a, a form-based app. And I think the magic of a form-based app is that you can structure it, so everyone is collecting the same types of observations. Is that the case with Mapeo?
0: Uh, to a certain extent, I, there's a balance that we've been trying to strike because uh, one of the challenges with the kind of the, the app that was kind of filling in a form was it's kind of quite a dry experience from a user's perspective. Um, you know, it's it's like a digital version of filling in a paper form, and we were kind of inspired in a way by social media apps, you know, Facebook, Instagram, which we saw uh, in many cases if somebody did have a phone locally, the first thing they'd be on is social media, and they'd be very quickly using it and adding photos and writing information about what's going on. And that we saw is kind of the same thing. They're sort of essentially, though a social media post is recording a photograph, it's often being tagged with different bits of structured data. It's having a description. Uh, so we tried to build a user interface which was more friendly in that it felt less like filling in a form and more like kind of filling in a, a kind of well, not really... Too much of social media posts, but more, more in that tone of kind of filling in a description. But we do also have this kind of additional structured data questions that you can kind of configure that can be filled in describing aspects of what's happened. But the key thing we, we do have always is we have a, an initial categorization. So when somebody records something, they uh, records a point, they can categorize it, whether that's an oil spill or whether that's a phishing site or a burial site, they have categories that they can choose from. And when you download Mapower and install it, you'll get a set of default categories with icons So when you create a point, you can kind of select the icon and that will define it as that category, but it can be configured with your own categorization, your own set of questions for each category and your own set of icons.
1: Okay. Yeah. So um, that makes a lot of sense. What about the geographic aspect of it? Are, are we always collecting location with these observations?
0: Almost always. Although one of the challenges, of course, is that the phone GPS isn't always um, accurate or reliable, especially when you're kind of under a forest canopy or next to a mountain. So we we kind of have also worked to kind of enable you to kind of manually enter coordinates from an external GPS that you might be using that will be more accurate. On mobile, we've focused so far uh, on gathering points. We're working on kind of adding a tracking feature which will allow somebody to kind of record the track of like walking along a path. We don't yet allow any kind of creation of like lines or polygons like drawing on the phone screen. We haven't really found a way to have a a satisfactory user experience of creating lines and polygons with a finger on a phone screen. But that can be done on kind of the desktop version. Uh, so we have a, a sort of a map editor on the desktop version that allows somebody based on the kind of points and in the future, the tracks that are being gathered with mobile to draw more more than just points, but draw lines and polygons of rivers, footpaths, areas, forest types, and they can create all of that on the desktop app.
1: So up until now, I've been thinking that people are going to be creating these projects in Mapail and going out and documenting um disasters, oil spills, I think was the example we we used just before, or something bad happening in the environment. Are they also using this to document good things or just to map unmapped places? Like this is where I gather my food. This is where I get my healthcare from. This is where I live. This is the the river that's important to us. Is that kind of work happening as well?
0: Definitely. Uh, I mean, often that it seems to be a kind of common thread in a lot of the communities, at least I visited, is they feel this maybe it's a generous interpretation of the kind of the outside world of people that live in the cities that the reason that they are allowing deforestation to happen or oil spills to happen is that people don't really understand what is there and why it is important so there's a strong desire to kind of to document that and to tell the story about everything that is important in that area why every single tree is important for some reason what how it can provide something that's helpful to people in terms of medicine or food so uh, as much as the work is working with communities who are documenting the bad stuff there's a, a lot of projects that we're doing with communities to to document everything that makes the land the forest the mountain important to them uh, and put that on the map and that that becomes a tool that they, they can then use to get their land rights recognized to go into discussions about decisions, maybe about opening up areas for farming or other kind of commercial operations. And they have something that they can use to support their argument that this is an area that is being used, uh, that is important, that they can also use it to show how they've been living in an area for generations, but have been continuing to conserve it and uh, protect the environment. And that all can be a kind of valuable storytelling tool for them in the kind of policy negotiations that it might be going into
1: i can't help but get the feeling when you when you talk about this it feels like if that if there's a blank space on a map like it's perceived as being empty that this is a vacuum nothing's going on here if we go there and start another activity then we're not disturbing anyone because nothing is is happening there and, and then it feels like this is a tool to help people understand well actually that there's a whole culture living here that there's a people living here these are important places for for this particular group, group of people. I wonder if that story would be best or could reach a broader audience if you took some of those observations, for example, and uploaded them to OpenStreetMap and made it publicly available. Could, could you imagine this work sort of moving in, in that direction?
0: I think so. It's a, it, it's a tricky one to balance. And it's a conversation that we often have with communities uh, because they want to communicate how they live and why it's important. But they're also very wary about how that information might be used kind of externally. And that was really driven home to me, like in some meeting in some conferences, indigenous peoples, First Nations from the USA and Canada, who are very wary about any sharing of this kind of cultural information publicly, because they, I found it shocking. They said, if, if people find out where our cultural sites are, there are some people that will go in and destroy them. It's, it seems to be what certain members of the public want to do. So. Uh, there's a a wariness and a difficult balance because these communities want to show th- this importance and these places are very important to them, but they're very wary about how that information might be used uh, if it's out in the public. And there is, I think, a balance to be found. And it's a nuanced conversation. It's also one that's very hard for a, a community to kind of have, especially one that is only recently grappling with a kind of complexity of the world of world events and these different motivations that people have. But I think the first step to that is them being able to have their data, like the maps they've made on their own technology, on their own laptops and their own phones. And then they can start to kind of really get an understanding of the data, the way it represents their understanding of the world. And that's a starting place for for making decisions about how much of that they want to share, how much of that they want other people to get access to. And I th- think that's very much still a work in progress of of figuring out. And I mean, this, this empowering of local communities with the ability to kind of collect that data themselves is really is opening up the way for them to make those decisions themselves about who they share it with and how I think there's still more work to be done there about how we improve the user experience of that, how people can really understand what they're sharing and what the implications will be and give them the kind of the tools to kind of control that and say, you know, I want to share my fishing sites, but maybe the burial sites will keep off the map that's public uh, because we're worried about what might be done with that information.
1: Do you think some of these local communities see themselves as victims of mapping?
0: That's yeah, a good question. I mean, I don't like the idea of a, a victim so much, but they, they, I think they have suffered the consequences of it. I mean, any map, I think, represents a subjective view of the world it, it's created by somebody that has a particular view of the world that they want other people to believe a lot of the communities i worked with they had the country they're living in created without really any concept they had no awareness of it when it was made for example in peru peru was became a concept as a country before the people living within it really knew about that and it started with a map somebody drew a map and said this is peru and they put some lines there on the ground none of those lines existed actually physically on the places they were, they were only existed on a map. And that map said, this is Peru and this all now belongs to the government, which lives in the capital city. And that is in a way, a kind of imposition of a view of the world on a community. Their their map says something about who the land belongs to, about who controls it and who makes decisions about it. So I I think, yes, they've been kind of victim of the mapping in that sense. And uh, it's kind of like... fighting words with words, fighting maps with maps. Uh It's giving communities the ability to create their own map, which represents their own view about how the world is, about who the land belongs to, about how it's been used, about who should make decisions about it. Uh, and I think that's the starting point for them to enter that conversation on a kind of more equal grounds. When it's a kind of community with their stories versus a government or an oil company with numbers, maps, documents, um, all their pieces of technology at the roll out roll out it's often ends up being a very unequal conversation with a community who's like very disempowered and the difference of when a community understands the technology that's being used, they understand the maps, they can read them, but they can also show their own maps. they can enter those conversations in a much more kind of equal level and feel much more empowered to you know enter those arguments and discussions about. How decisions are made about how land is used, how how decisions are made about the future of a particular area, and what's happening there.
1: I think that was a really interesting insight you came with the, the idea of fighting maps with maps. And to me, anyway, it's back to that idea of a common language. Okay, well, if this is the language that the decisions are made in, then we we, we better learn that language. And I guess what you're doing is creating tools to empowering people to to learn the language so they can you know fight maps with maps essentially. Yeah. So. When we map things in the culture that, that, that we come from, here, here in the West, so I, I live in Denmark, you live in in the UK, when, when mapping happens over here, when decisions are made, it's not very common to have complete agreement about, okay, this area is used for that thing. Do you see the same sort of things in these local communities? This maybe, I guess, as soon as you start to document things, write it down on paper or, or document it through the apps that you're building, you're saying, I believe this area is is for that. And I guess people have different understandings locally as well within a community. Do do you see those kind of discussions happening as well around as soon as they start to, to to document what's around them?
0: Definitely, I think that's a very good point. And you know, indigenous communities or rural communities around the world, like any community, as you as you've noted, are diverse and there are different opinions. And the tools we're working with, I think, just maps in general are an incredibly powerful tool for. Local kind of consensus building and discussions, as much as they are important for the kind of communication without the with the outside world, or maybe even more so by coming around a map and discussing it and drawing things on a map, it enables those conversations to happen in a much more sane way. People can be sure that they're talking about the same thing, and they can have a something to have a conversation around, um, like a line on a map. That's been incredibly valuable. Um, in some places that I've worked, it's where the way that the government recognizes land rights is to give each village an area of land and without managing their own maps what happens is a series of neighboring villages end up in debates about where boundaries should be put between villages and that whole happens in the space of those negotiations with the government by enabling the villages to make the maps themselves they can have that discussion about where their boundaries are internally in a much more kind of reasoned fashion and make strategic discussions about how they ensure they don't leave gaps between the villages and how they ensure that they're protecting the area as a whole. And then once they've decided that, then they can come to a kind of space with a government official and look for recognition of that land once they've kind of come to that consensus themselves. So so I think in answer your question, I think maps provide a really valuable tool for having discussions about land and who makes decisions about it, about what should be there. And by empowering like on a very local level people to be able to like see and use and edit maps that enables that decision making to to be pushed right down to the local level rather than being in the hands of a gis technician or an outsider like me who's sort of mediating all those conversations through qgis on my laptop and i think that's incredibly powerful
1: yeah and i can also imagine um that it would add a lot of weight to the story that's being told by these local communities if they all agree on the story. So how do you agree on a story? You start by having a discussion around the parts of the story, what makes sense for everyone. And then if we all have a common story, we're all repeating the common story, that would help people externally to understand, oh, well, there, there's consensus in this community. There's agreement here. And the story is always the same, no matter who I talk to. That, that must sort of help add weight to the to the arguments that they're making or the discussions that they're having.
0: Definitely. To kind of share a concrete example of that, we worked with uh, a group of people in Ecuador uh, called the Guarani, and uh, they had learned that the Ecuadorian government was planning to create a, a new oil concession. So that's a kind of area of land that is marked out and they put it to auction to oil companies, say like, who wants to drill here? And a few of the Warani communities had learned about this and wanted to take action, but they recognized that Throughout their territory of several dozen Warani villages, there was a kind of diversity of opinion about oil exploration and what it means and what the benefits it could bring versus impact. So they started a process of mapping their lands with the villages. And that enabled people to start to understand as a collective whole how every single part of that area was important in some way to them. Even areas which a particular family wasn't actively using were valuable in terms of that was where the rivers headwaters were that were draining into their area, or there's an area of like, high biodiversity of animals where the animals that they relied on to, for feeding their families were were kind of coming from, and that map making process enabled the Warani to build consensus about what they thought about the the potential oil exploration in that area, and they created their maps. They took them to a court proceeding against the Ecuadorian government, arguing that this was their land, that they had not been consulted in the process of auctioning off this area to oil companies, and the oil concessions were annulled and halted. They won the court battle, and uh, they succeeded in kind of protecting that that area of land from from further oil exploration
1: Oh. I'm sure you've got a million stories like that. And I, I really appreciate you sharing them with us because it adds context to this. It, bring, it, it lifts the discussion up. Suddenly we're not just talking about X, Y, Z coordinates, you know, and time dates and, and observations made in an app. We're talking about people's experiences, the way a community protects itself and ensures its, its survival. And yeah, I, I find it absolutely fascinating.
0: That that example of the Warani, I think, is also Like fundamental to the kind of origins about why we started creating Mapeo, um, to kind of add a story to what I was talking about earlier in a kind of very abstract sense. When the Warani came to us and said we want to make these maps because there's this oil concession over our land, Mapeo did not exist, and we started a process of mapping with them with GPS and QGIS and some of them, a couple of guys from the Warani communities had learned QGIS, but they were very quickly frustrated about how difficult it was. Just the simple process of going on a walk with a GPS, connecting that to the computer, downloading the data into QGIS and showing it as points on the map. That was just incredibly hard. And they felt really frustrated when it was they were completely dependent on me or somebody else external to kind of do that for them. So they made a very clear demand, like, we just want to go for a walk, gather some points, in our village, which has no internet, we want to show those points on a computer screen and gather around and kind of see them. And that that's what started our drive and research into how we could build Mapayo. We, we wanted to solve these very simple problems in, a, in an easy way that enabled somebody like the Warani to put their points on the screen, have a discussion about them, add some additional attributes and data to them, and, and then share it with the world.
1: Okay, so, so I think sometimes as, as geospatial professionals, people that are working in the industry, we, we forget that the magic of just putting points on a screen, like you were saying, look at that. that this is where this is relative to this other thing. When, when you think about the future of Mapeo, if we start increasing the accuracy, if you create these trails, if people are allowed to or are enabled to to draw polygons, for example, or perhaps you know, 3D scan objects and start collecting data in, in more detail in those ways, do you think that will that will help the stories that you are, are trying to tell? Uh, I guess what I'm asking is, are we done now with Mapel? Have, have we got what we need? Or is there a future where, where things are better, stronger, faster?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. It's something that as a team, we're kind of debating and discussing internally right now. Is it a tool that has a clear kind of end place or is it something that is constantly evolving? And I think there's a in terms of wanting to scale something and keep it easy to use for like new communities around the world, there is, a, I think, a really strong benefit and argument for keeping everything simple. If you can just take a photograph, take a location, take a date, and uh, put it on a map, that's going to be uh, in- incredibly powerful and it's going to be easy to learn. But as you say, there are like really exciting opportunities with the technology. Being able to create a 3D map, particularly if if mountains or uh, kind of the terrain or the satellite images showing the kind of vegetation cover is really valuable, then being able to view that through a 3D model. or I mean, what I always think about is a potential power of drones in that if there is an oil spill or a new area or forest that's been opened up for gold mining, there is a limit to how much of that you can capture with like a camera on a phone. So the ability to like fly a drone and create a kind of 3D map of that destruction can be an incredibly powerful storytelling tool. So whether that will be part of the future of Mapeo or that will be other tools that we build that will be integrated with Mapeo, I think as an organization, we're really interested in kind of exploring these new technologies as they become available. But part of it is also a waiting game of waiting for the technology to become common enough for it to be like Widely usable without requiring a lot of kind of technical support from outside or kind of financial support to, you know, drones are still very expensive, but the price is coming down all the time. And soon they're going to be as cheap as a simple Android cell phone and be much more accessible for anybody to pick up and start using.
1: Well, I think with that sort of look into the future and some of your insights around where my payout might be heading, I think this might be a good place to wrap up the conversation. So, Gregor, thank you very much for your time. I've, I've really enjoyed talking with you. And I I really appreciate your work. Thank you very much. You're helping a lot of people and um, it's amazing. It's valuable work. I hope that you get the recognition that you deserve. If there's people listening to this and they want to reach out to you or learn more about what's happening at at Digital Democracy, the apps that you're building, perhaps some of the communities that you're working with, or or maybe they they want to help in some way, where where should they go to to do those things?
0: I think our website is obviously a good place to start, digital-democracy.org. You can uh, also find us on Twitter at DigiDem. And if you reach out to the team, you'll be able to find our, our Discord community, which is a, a way that you can kind of talk about how you might use Mapeo or you might want to interact with the developers to start contributing. Everything is an open source app. And uh, we also have some open positions right now looking for developers. So uh, yeah, please do get in touch and 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 look to maybe join our team.
1: Thanks again for your time, Gregor. It was it was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Daniel. So I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Gregor, the Technical Director at Digital Democracy. There'll be a bunch of links in the show notes today. Firstly, of course, we'll link to Digital Democracy, so you can find out more about them if you're interested in the, lear- learning more about the work that they're doing. Of course, there'll be a link to the tool that Gregor was talking about, MAPEO. And I want to point out that we've talked about offline mapping solutions before and there'll be links to those also in the show notes today. So I have a lot of links, a lot of information in the show notes today. Please check them out. And it's worth mentioning one more time here at the end that I'm working with OpenCage. So OpenCage is a geocoder based on OpenStreetMap data and they have bought a bunch of advertising slots on this podcast. Instead of me promoting OpenCage, they have decided to donate these slots to interesting projects based on OpenStreetMap. So all people need to do to apply to be featured on the podcast is fill out the form. There'll be a link to that in the show notes as well. So please, even if this doesn't directly relate to you, even if you're not directly involved in an OpenStreetMap project that deserves more attention than it's getting, perhaps you know someone who is. Maybe you can help me spread the word. And if that's the case, I would really appreciate it. And as always, you're more than welcome to reach out to me. You can find me on Twitter. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. And of course, visit mapscaping.com. And there'll be a bunch of of options there if if you want to contact me via email, for example. Okay, that's it for me. That's it for this week's episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. I'll be back again next week. I really hope that you'll take the time to join me then. Bye.